0: Have been going from one guru to another, to another, and all of them keep saying, I don't know the answer to your question, And but maybe this guy over there or whatnot, and he finally found out of this guru on the top of the mountain. So he climbed up the mountain, and he gets to the guru, and he says, oh, dear guru, I've been all over the place asking this question. Nobody knows the answer. Please tell me, what is the key to the universe? And the old guru says, I don't know. I don't know the key to the universe. I think I was just really disappointed. Then the old guru says, But uh, the universe has been left unlocked. <laughs> you don't need the key to the universe, the universe has been left unlocked. Well, Brian, you were um, asking questions that had to do with the fact that when the meditation books or meditation teachers or whatever like that say to be aware of what the mind is doing, to note that, that most people then will note those things and then feel bad about it. Oh no, there the monkey mind goes again. This is, in fact, something that Goenka mentions right from the very beginning. And he starts off with the phrase when the mind wanders away, never mind, start again. Now, what he's uh, actually doing, he's conveying a message, but the message that's conveyed is in the tone of voice that he uses. And he's, and he's using the tone of voice of an old grandmother who loves her grandchild very much and has caught the child being naughty. <laughs> but instead of like grandfather or like daddy and whooping the child, and, which is what the Westerner does to their own mind, instead it's, never mind, start again, start again. All right. So that's kind of the nurturing way to look at it. Now, this is something that nurturing that never mind start again when the when the Westerner reads it, they can put any tone and inflection in there that they want to, and many times it's uh even Goanka's tone and inflection is not heard by the Westerner who are hearing their own tones and inflections anyway,
1: yeah,
0: and are not catching this nurturing tone of. Never mind. Start again. Or, in the sense of what we're to actually talking about, uh, more to the point of Anapanasati, is for the mind to celebrate <laughs> that we can catch it, and the celebration would be the way that the Buddha said it was. Aha! I caught you, Mara. Aha! Yeah. I can see that stuff. Okay, so that aha is actually a gladdening or a lifting of the mind. Uh, That has also that nurturing quality to it that is designed to take us out of the feelings of, oh, no, there we go again. Oh, I'm such a victim to my own mind. This is a monkey mind. I'll never get it trained. And this is who I am and poor me. Why do I even bother meditating? Okay, You hear all of those bad feelings that are wrapped up in that verbiage that I just gave. Those Mm -hmm. are the loser's thoughts, the loser's mentality. And it comes out of desire of wanting things that we don't have. In fact, we just got it. And we don't recognize it. What does that mean? That means if we're practicing sati, the whole idea of the number one skill is to wake up. And we just woke up. We just woke up and saw that the mind was full of garbage. We just actually did step one and step two of Anapanasati, or of uh, the Eightfold Noble Path in the sense of sati and the view of investigation. So when we investigated and found that it was uh, uh, discernibly uh, unwholesome, Then we immediately jump into the unwholesome. Oh, that was an unwholesome thought you had there. I think you're a pretty piece of shit. Why don't you get your mind straightened out there? You know, this is the kind of attitude that we have with ourselves. Rather than having that, okay, you saw it. Never mind. Start again. Or like the Buddha would. Yeah, I saw you. I got you that time. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so this is the kind of exuberance that we want to have of this, of Anapanasati. But it is the gladdening the mind because of the congratulations that we now have the the path factors back again, that we've remembered that we're on the path. We've remembered that we've got the method. Mm-hmm. That's what the celebration is. And then when we go uh, further than that, then we recognize that the, actually the kind of good feelings that we have available to us in meditation are the kind of feelings that we know that humans aspire to. Right. The very, very good, high-quality feelings, the way that humanity goes about getting those things is by having celebrations, and normally those celebrations are built around the ending of competitions, okay, the end game party, (laughs) right? But it was the game that we had to go and compete in order to win something. It's a lot of effort and time. (laughs) Right, so all of that has to do then with how many people actually do something that really give those kind of feelings. One example would be the gold medalist. When he's winning that gold medal, how does he feel as he's crossing the finish line, knowing that he's won the 100-yard dash in the, and is the now considered, at this point in time, he also considers him the best in the world?
1: Feeling, how am I feeling? Pretty
0: good. <laughs> how do you feel? Okay. What does the body want to do?
1: Jump, on, jump up and down
0: everywhere. you know? Oh, let me ask you in particular, what on the right arm, what does this muscle feel like when you feel like that you're a champion, that you've got it? I don't know. <laughs> it feels, you know, like
1: oh.
0: <laughs> this. This is yeah. what it feels like. You can actually feel that right into the muscles. Okay. That exuberance of being on top of the world literally that you've won this. one, Okay. And I want to impress upon you this because the biggest thing for humanity to conquer, the biggest job there is to do the highest mountain there is to climb is not Mount Everest. The highest mountain is the human mind. And when you're able to climb that mountain, you should have that same exhilaration as if you had climbed Mount Everest. <laughs> the same kind of exhilaration that you're on top of the world, that you're the absolute best there is at this. No one is as good as cleaning out my own mind as I am. And I've been able to do that. Probably no I've one got else other can either. People <laughs> who have cleaned out and climbed their own mind, but that's their business. This one. this is the one that is the big deal can I climb this mountain and so when we begin to recognize that yes we can that should give us automatically the feeling of exuberance the feeling of well-being the feeling of I've got this I can handle this if I can handle this I can handle anything this is where the, uh, the next part of the path kicks in which is Sama sankapa, or the one's right attitude that, that actually drives the way we think. So when we feel like and have the attitude of a lion, we don't have the thoughts that victims have. Right. Right. So when, the, when we talk about Sama sankapa, we can say that uh, at the Eightfold Noble Path, we can say, uh, right view and right thought. Sankapa has translated often as right thought. It's also translated as right intention. But what we're actually talking about here is more closely of the thought process. Start looking at how we think. And how we think is according to the attitude that we have. And that attitude is built upon our views. Right. Isn't that interesting now? So if we have the views and the attitude of a lion, we'll have thoughts of a lion. If we have uh, uh, views and attitudes of wholesome, then we'll have thoughts that are wholesome. So this is why that uh, that part of the path is so important, is because that puts us into the place of saying, okay, we're going to actually practice in this moment of having right thoughts. In order to have right thoughts, we have to almost reprogram the mind to have the new attitude to have that new kind of thought. Yeah. But it's not aspirational. (laughs) Okay. It's right now, isn't it? (laughs) Right. here's the point that I'm making here is, is that aspirational means we don't really believe it. This is the problem with books on aspiration. We have how many libraries full of how many self-help books? And people read those and they get all exhilarated while they're reading the book. And when they finish reading the book, it goes back on the shelf and so does their mind. (laughs) And part of it is, is even they practice the aspirations. They're not practicing what we're talking about. They're practicing a list of ought-tos, woulds, shoulds, hopes, dreams, aspirations, in fact. May I be the handsomest dude in town? Or something <laughs> ridiculous. Right? And deep down inside, the child of us who are re- reciting these aspirations, you know, believe it. Mm. It's not real. I'm trying to convince myself That I'm a lion. But I ain't having none of it. (laughs) Yeah. Because I know otherwise, okay? And so now we're talking about the fact that these aspirations that don't change the mind from the victim's position into the winner's position are just aspirations. And that, in fact, it's almost a kind of dukkha in the sense of just repeating things over and over again as if we want those things and we don't have them.
1: Like scheduled uh,
0: wanting things over and over, exactly, yeah. Exactly, exactly. To what we're practicing here is uh, gladdening the mind in the sense of beginning to pay attention to the, the wholesome side of things.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And by paying attention to the wholesome side of things, we gladden the mind and we begin to then appreciate and take great joy in the reality of what we find is that this breath really is a nice breath. If I pay attention to it, it really feels good to breathe, to breathe out. Wow, just to relax feels good. Yeah. So. Begin to pay attention to the reality of the situation, and by paying attention to the reality of the situation, begin to intentionally take the mind out of the victim's unwholesome <clears throat> beliefs about reality, into the recognizing, this is great. This moment is absolutely wonderful. It doesn't match up to my future, and it certainly is a whole lot better than the past. <laughs> but This is nice. One of the things about the here now is it doesn't require anything of us.
1: But it's better if we pay attention to it. (laughs) Pardon? But it's better if we pay attention to it, the here now. If we're
0: paying attention to it and watch what's going on, what we can do is recognize that it's not making any demands upon us, it's just there. The unreality is, is that it's making demands on, for us or wants things from us because of our own past experience of having been deman- uh, things demanded of us. And we almost get into the habit of feeling like that we've got to do, we've got to work. Things are demanded of us. We're responsible here. Get up, and do your job, go to work, clean your room, do your homework, pass your exam. Up two, three, four. This is how we train our children, and this is what we call critical. Get her done. And so we wind up then responsible, almost jumpy. Looking for things to do so that we Mm. can see it, get it done before anybody else sees (laughs) it. The next thing to to fix, fix, right? Pardon? The next thing to fix, right? The next thing to fix. And so actually that whole mentality or that whole attitude of the victim is that that things need to be fixed, that this bed is not soft enough. (laughs) That things need to be worked on and that I'm only partially successful At being able to do that. And I'm half failure and half successful. And you can see how harmful that whole view or whole attitude to life really is. And so we actually need to have the success of taking the mind out of the unwholesome into a wholesome place to gladden it. To find out that we can cheer ourselves up. And then we get pretty good at it and we recognize, hey, that's actually the way to go. The more I do this, the more I recognize that I actually have control over the way that I feel moment by moment. If you have the sati. All I have to do is remember now because now I know how to take a deep breath, throw those thoughts out and come to the here now. So the only thing we do to do is to keep remembering. But we have to develop those other skills also, and one of them that you were mentioning there is not just the skill of the discernment and the sati, but also of taking the effort to change the attitude or actually to change the mind by gladdening it. Mm-hmm. Okay, to throw those unwholesome thoughts that lead to unwholesome feelings out and place new wholesome thoughts in. Now one of the things that, that you'd also mentioned that I wanted to back up with, and that is, is that I think that our society of human beings has changed since the time of the Buddha, and we'll talk about <laughs> it in a little bit. But that one of the ways of saying it then is, is that if Buddha had been born in this time and age, then some of the suttas that he would teach would be different. Because the people nowadays are different than they were then. And the way that I would look at it would be like this, that it happened before, during, and certainly after the industrial revolution, where people were taken off the farm and put to work. In fact, it's the time that clocks came about and it's the time when we begin to think that time is money. In the old days, in agrarian society, harvest happened only once a year. And so there was a much more relaxed kind of view about time structure. Right. All right. And so that's the whole mentality that's changed since the time of the Buddha could be time itself becomes a factor, which makes it even more critical. And so in the time of the Buddha, when the Buddha talks about it in uh sutta number 38 is one of them, uh, the Mahatanha uh Singhata Sutta, where the child is born, and then the child plays with toys, and after he plays with toys, as he gets older, he stays in sensual desire. And so you can see how the uh the Indian young, educated, uh, or non-educated, but only educated to what they had at that time with no clocks or anything like that, that the young men, uh, even the aristocrats, would spend their time just seeking pleasure, sensual pleasures. Okay. Okay. Our time, we've added a whole different hard line to it. You can, in fact, see that Uh, In that time, there was a whole lot of greed, not much ill will, and a whole lot of ignorance. So the greed, ill will, and delusion of the second noble truth was heavy on number one, light on number two, and heavy duty on number three. Our society has changed so that now we do everything for sensual pleasure, sensual desires. We're chasing that all the time. But we have this additional thing of society, clocks, time, responsibilities, and work to do that puts a whole lot of new kinds of ill will in it, in the sense of this is not good enough. This is not good enough. We need better than this. Okay. And so it's a whole lot of rejection now, so that the society nowadays would be a, a small number one, a small number three, and a giant. Number two. And that that giant number two comes in the sense then that there is not, there are many kinds of unwholesome thoughts. But one of the most important kind of unwholesome thoughts is the thoughts of criticism. During the time of Buddha, the kinds of thoughts that the people had that they were trying to change would be thoughts of greed. Hmm. I want this, I want that. Well, you see in meditation, you have a whole lot of greed going on. People want <laughs> enlightenment. They want uh, past life experiences. They want jhanas. They want soda pot. I mean, there's just all kinds of greed going on, spiritual materialism within there. But there's an awful lot also that while the students are practicing that, they're also practicing you ain't good enough because you don't have it. Right, right okay and so they bring that extra uh dukkha into it it's not that they just don't have what they what they want they make it really suffering because you gotta have it you're no good without it so what we have to do is to change the mind state and the way to change the mind state is moment by moment the gladdening of the mind making it wholesome instead of unwholesome. And it's really interesting to see how things have changed from the time of the Buddha up until present moment. And so we have to make it, but it's still the same point that we can say a brightening the mind, ladden the mind, come out of the unwholesome thoughts into wholesome thoughts, which would also have to do with coming out of the past, because our past is always broken. I mean, you can reminisce and find some good things to remember, but if you reminisce and find some good things to remember, then you want to think things back the way that they were. Oh, if we could just have the old days. (laughs) Or I had that particular motorcycle. Why don't I have it now? If I only had done this, then I wouldn't have lost that motorcycle. Therefore, if I stop doing it that way now, I'll have that motorcycle back again, you see. And so actually, we begin to cling to even the good memories. But most of the memories of a modern human being are going to be memories of tragedy, memories of mistakes, memories of broken promises, memories of I didn't get this way or that way. And so in both cases, it's really a good idea to stay out of that ignorant past. In fact, the wise way of looking at that past is, oh, that's just the past. That's not me now. The me who is here is not the one who did all those things in the past. And right now I'm better off in this present moment than I was in the past. Because when I was in the past, in that moment, I was then Also in the past, but right now we're in the present moment and I am not who I was in the past, living in the past. Now I'm Mm -hmm. in the present moment, living in the present moment. And that past is not me. That's how we begin to get free from our own past is to recognize it's not me. I'm a Dhamma dude now. I've got higher standards. I'm climbing a mountain here. Let's let's stay away from the sewer. Yeah. <laughs> and so by the way, what mountain are we climbing? Uh
1: our own personal
0: mountain. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. We got a mountain to climb here. Let's stay out of the past.
1: Yeah. I noticed a big difference. Um uh... I guess before uh, watching your videos, I was mostly meditating uh, with a very future orientation, like if I you've probably said something like this before, but if I meditate for you know X number of numbers, then I'll be surely I'll be enlightened then. Whereas mm-hmm. now it's a lot more fun just to uh, set the goal as really enjoying this moment. And, you know, whatever happens in the future, we'll see what happens. But uh, yeah. might as well enjoy it yeah. right now.
0: Exactly. We've got a marvelous toy, this human being thing, and each one of us has got one as our own personal toy. Have a ball with it. (laughs) Enjoy. (laughs) It's gonna it's gonna break too soon anyway. (laughs) (laughs) So why not enjoy it instead of sitting it on the shelf hoping that it doesn't break? We're all gonna die. Why not die happily? Yeah. <laughs> Why do we have to be afraid of dying? So these are, again, wholesome thoughts. Death, ah, I can handle that. Taxes, sure, not a problem. Government officials, piece of cake. Cops, best friend. <laughs> <laughs> Tuberculosis, I can breathe through that. And so we begin to have that that attitude that it doesn't matter what kind of thing happens, we're not going to get into poor me, that's bigger and better and badder than I am. So we keep that attitude that we can handle anything. But that's in fact, that whole attitude change is between victim and lion is the distinction between dukkha and dukkha neroda. How often are you going to be in that counterbalance. How often are you going to be uh, the king of your hill? <laughs> and how often are you going to be buried under it? I really like that little expression. Everyone is an emperor of their own pile of dirt. Yeah. The question <laughs> is, are you going to be buried under your pile of dirt? Or are you going to be sitting on top of your world?
1: I guess you could also be like slave to your pile of dirt. You know, you want to be the emperor, ideally. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, the slave to the pile of dirt would be like trying to crawl out of it. Trying to struggle with it. You're either buried under it, complete victim, or you're struggling trying to get out of it. I want out. I want out. Versus just being on top of the world. (laughs) And it really is a matter of the change of an attitude. It's a mind moment change. It is not something that requires shakti pot or some magic or some uh, uh, flying kama machine comes in with a shakti pot and whacks you because you put in 100,000 hours of sitting meditation, all in misery, all in great hope that eventually you'll feel bliss. And finally the comma machine says, okay, now it's all right, you can feel bliss. Why can't we tell ourselves 10,000 or 100,000 hours of meditation to go, okay, now you can feel bliss. <laughs> now you can do it. Go ahead. Have a nice bliss out moment on me. Take a deep breath. A bliss with me. <laughs> <laughs> so. That's the whole idea. Why do we have to wait? The answer is because we're critical and we're saying time is not right. Time is not right. I haven't put in the effort yet. <laughs> I haven't gotten my round to it. You know, have you ever seen one? I had one back in the 1970s.
1: Oh, I don't know what that is.
0: <laughs> oh. Haven't you ever heard somebody say that uh, I'll do this and that when I get around to it? Yeah. Okay. Well, I had one. Oh, yeah? Yeah. On one side of it, it was a one-it, and on the other side was a two-it, and it was round.
1: Ah. Did you hide it so you would never get around to it? (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> no, I got around to it. That was the whole point. That's the whole point of meditation, to go ahead ah. and get around to it. Go ahead and get around to your bliss. You don't have to wait until you get around to it. Sounds You've good. You've got one. Which which is exactly the same joke in a, in a way as um, um, the seeker. Have been going from one guru to another, to another, and all of them keep saying, I don't know the answer to your question, And but maybe this guy over there or whatnot, and he finally found out of this guru on the top of the mountain. So he climbed up the mountain, and he gets to the guru, and he says, oh, dear guru, I've been all over the place asking this question. Nobody knows the answer. Please tell me, what is the key to the universe? the old guru says, I don't know. I don't know the key to the universe. I think I was just really disappointed. Then the old guru says, but uh, the universe has been left unlocked. (laughs) You don't need the key to the universe. The universe has been left unlocked
1: walk right in
0: right you can walk right in so the key to your bliss you don't need a key (laughs) because bliss is not locked up (laughs) and so this is the way that we have to understand it that everything that we need is available is available to us right now and that as we keep taking that Availability. We develop the skills of being able to do that, so that we get better and better and better at being here now. Mm -hmm. As we develop the skills, then of getting the mind straightened out, we develop the skills then of feeling comfortable, secure, safe, secure, and then we develop the attitude of success. We can do this. We've got this one made. And we hear that in our, in our lives all the time. But most of the people who play the part of a lion, they do so out of bravado because they don't have it deep inside. You can hear braggarts and bullies and uh, people who uh, will say things like, I've got this wired or hold my beer or whatever like that. But they're really just trying to prove themselves. Mm. Because they're really not sure inside. Here, we're actually getting the proof because we're practicing with with doing the only job that's worth doing, and that is cleaning out one's own mind. And we're getting good at doing that. And so (laughs) now the attitude is, that I can do. Which means I can handle any situation because not handling a situation means that the mind becomes a victim to the situation. As opposed to being in charge. That you're the boss now. Think about it. You're the you're the boss of your own life. Um, I just said just several weeks ago to uh, uh when he was talking about um, his boss demanding too much of him and things like this. And I pointed out to Keyshawn, wait a minute, that man is not your boss. You're your boss. You're the boss of this situation. You're the emperor here. (laughs) But all he is is just, you know, a yakking noise. But when you make him the boss, you have to become the victim. Hmm. Okay, But you can deal with the boss from the position of being a lion. You're just as big as he he is. I can meet the boss man-to-man. Can the boss meet me man-to-man? Or does he have to treat me like an underling, like he's better than I am? Even so, I can still treat him man-to-man, and he'll begin to treat me like I'm an equal. You can see that... In all kinds of relationships. Are we going to do a one-up, one-down situation or are we going to be together at it? Yeah. We don't have to treat our bosses as if we were the victims like they were a parent and we were a child. And yet that's the relationship that most people have with their bosses rather than meeting their boss on equal terms. Because you're just as good as anybody. In fact, that's the way of thinking about it. When you realize that, in fact, really, whenever we compare ourselves to another person and lose, we were still the one who chose the criteria. Like, oh, he's got a new car. I want one, too. He's better than I am. He has a new car, and I don't have the new car. Therefore, he's better than I am. But look at the i mean i'm setting that up as a competition and losing intentionally that's called jealousy
1: <laughs>
0: maybe best to skip the whole thing yeah why do we choose that as the criteria for who's better than the other Not because i want that. it that's right right i want that car instead of just saying oh i like that car we go to i like that car i want that car I'm not good enough without the car. He has the car. He is good enough. I'm comparing myself to him. And there comes the jealousy. All of that is just one little thought moment after another that builds that up. And we could have stopped it at the point of, he's got a nice car. It's beautiful. I hope he enjoys it. I don't want it. Good for (laughs) him. Good for him. And so... This is how we begin to see the mind and gladden it or brighten it up as soon as we can, because otherwise we can spiral down into the dukkha of wanting things, thinking that if we get what we want, we'll feel better. In fact, we feel what the way that we want to, whether we get what we like or not. And we, not only that, but in any particular moment, we can choose what we're thinking about that we like. So I can either see the photograph of the beautiful girl and want her and like that photograph and therefore like the girl, or I can set the, the picture down and say, never mind, I like being alone. I like not having to put up with them. I like, <laughs> and so we can begin to like the things that we actually do have. That's the point that it took me so long to get around to this. <laughs> there is a song, Love the One You're With. Have you ever heard that one?
1: Maybe, I'm not sure.
0: Okay, well, this, they're, they're talking about romantic love, but here we're talking about Dhamma. To love the one you're with. This reality, this moment, this environment, this scene, this um, present environment that we're in is what we need to fit into and be in love with. To just literally fall in love with existence because here it is right in front of us. Love the one you're with. But we don't, we're always loving something that's not here. And it's either in the past, in the future, or someplace else. Mm -hmm. And we have such a beautiful love affair possible (laughs) with this reality of the moment. And so we begin to like what's happening right now. We begin to love this present moment. This is marvelous. Yeah, it's fun when...
1: uh... Go ahead. Like going on walks now that it's warm out and stuff, uh, and just looking for things to enjoy, like when the sun's finally out because it's been cloudy all winter, you know. Uh, it's a lot more fun to be able to spot things that make you happy instead of uh, lasering in on all the negative things you could point out if you wanted to, you know. Mm-hmm.
0: Exactly. So this is a. Um... There is an old movie, a story of a a novel by the name of Pollyanna, where there is a young woman who does have this attitude. And I think that in the book, they actually don't like her very much because she's always Pollyanna. Everything is bright, everything is good. And so they set her up for failure. I don't remember exactly what happened in the book, but I do know that um, the Pollyanna attitude of everything is all right is actually the reality of the situation. Reality of the situation, everything is okay, everything's fine. (laughs) But it's the human critical mind that goes around saying, "Eh, no, it's not, I can make it better. But then that we all have that attitude. No, it's not good enough, and I can make it better. We keep that as almost a bugle call in our ear. Charge. Okay. Do you know the bugle call charge? I know all the. I can think of the tune. I don't know. Okay. The charge is da 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 <laughs> That's it. And we and we have that bugle horn playing inside the mind on a regular basis. And we feel like we got to go do something. We got to get up. That's another one is revelry You got to get up. Da-da-da-da-da, all can be done with a bugle without any vowels. It's all done with the lips. But anyway. Thirds and are piss, mostly, piss and octaves. So the whole point about these things is that we have thoughts. And those thoughts are work to do. These thoughts are critical thoughts. They're unwholesome thoughts. They're unsettling thoughts. But our whole society is built upon them. What kind of society would we have if everybody was happy and satisfied with where they were? What kind (laughs) of airline industry would they have if all the people who now work for the airline industry couldn't bother to go to work? (laughs) What about all the guys at Boeing building all those airplanes? And they were just happy flying a drone in their backyard instead. And what about all those executives flying all over the world to make money, but now they're comfortable and happy sitting at home? I think the GDP would slowly mm, like this. The climate change problem would go away pretty quick. Well, that's not going to happen because greed is that strong in the minds of ordinary people. It's only a few who will be able to wake up. Only a few of us can be polyamorous. Only a few of us can be noble.
1: Are you saying um, for society to continue or like just the odds of more
0: people waking up are very slim? The odds of more people waking up is large is large for two reasons one is because the population now is large okay yeah number two um uh, that um the Dhamma that came to the west let us say and fits and starts from the 1800s and what happened then in the politics, society and whatnot like that have left a lot of gaps but now that the Internet is here, now that the noble Dhamma is out and available, all of the bits and pieces that were um, missing out of the Western Buddhism, those holes now can be plugged in. Right? That, in fact, the two major holes that we need to have plugged in, we have to look at the triple gem the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. The uh, the Dhamma that's come to the West is really leaky. There's a lot of problems with the Dhamma. A lot of it is magical. A lot of it is um, um, other people's views about it. um, uh, And let us say giving students the wrong impression because the teachers themselves haven't gotten the right training that people tend to teach. Buddhism before they're ready to teach it. Mm. Okay, so the Dhamma's got real holes in it. Now let's look at the other two. The the Buddha and the Sangha, those two are completely missing. There are not large numbers of Buddhas that are highly respected. Though there are a few Buddhas around, very few of them are um, personally known. Very few people know a Buddha as a Buddha. Very few people spend time in the present hour after hour with the Dalai Lama, for instance, and some of these other old monks. What they would rather do instead is read a book by a Western writer. (laughs) They don't have the Buddha. Not only that, but all the Western meditation teachers that you have in the West, except for a few monks and whatnot. uh, We're talking about the, uh, the, by and large, Reddit magazines, paid retreat centers, all of those kind of things. That whole world there is not a sangha because they compete with each other. The retreat centers compete with each other by charging money. The Dhamma teachers compete with each other. Oh, I'm better than he is. That in fact, there's a whole group of them uh, that are on the internet that are, uh, spend their time trashing other Dhamma teachers. No (laughs) Sangha there. This is what we really need is we need a real Sangha of Dhamma dudes who can become friends with each other and and as the next generation of students come in, that group of new teachers can grow up inside and within a sangha rather than huffing it on their own. The reason that there are no sanghas is because each of the Westerners has never had the opportunity to join the Sangha. Those Westerners who have been uh uh have hadn't the opportunity to join the Sangha. Those are going to be the monks, but then the Westerners are not uh, spending all their times with the monks or being, I mean, a few people are, but most of the people, uh, let us say, for uh, an example on Reddit, there's one group called Meditation that has more than 400,000 members. What would happen if a particular Sunday, all 400,000 of those actually went out guru shopping? (laughs) So some of them are going to be at temple. Some of them are going to be at uh, this teacher or that teacher's address or whatever like that. And there's so few teachers around that every one of them would be mobbed if all 400,000 of them were there. My question is, not just which Sunday all 400,000 are going to show up, but why aren't all 400,000 already there with their teacher? The answer is there's no teachers available. Mm. And what teachers are there are not in a sangha together. Yeah,
1: I know of some that charge a heck of a lot of money if you want to talk to them, at least in the West, you know.
0: Mm -hmm. Some of them do. But those that have been in sangha and know the value of the Nama to be given freely. So, in fact, Sangha and freely teaching the Dhamma go kind of hand in hand. If you start charging money for the Dhamma or start counting on donations for the Dhamma, then the students become important. We start keeping a student list. We'll do anything to keep that student from going to another teacher. <laughs> But if we're just having fun with our friends, and even if our friend goes to another teacher, that's all right, you're still my friend. Yeah. And I'm not competing with anybody. So this is the kind of thing that we need as, for the, as a Sangha. We need to start developing Sangha. This is one point uh, that I talk about in the sense of having the students who call me, or the uh, my friends who call me, to also learn each other. Talk to each other about the, the Dhamma. Mm. Become friends. Let's get a network going where everybody knows everybody else.
1: I've seen your it, website. I don't know if that's what you're referring to. Is it the Open
0: Sangha collective or something? Like, right. So if you'd like, go ahead and get involved with Matt and the guys who were building that website. Mm. Because they're really good people to become friends with.
1: <laughs> yeah. What's, what also, are you guys up to with that? Like, what are you guys working on? I know you have the map of the different uh, Watts and stuff. I might actually go to a wat tomorrow uh, as it happens, but.
0: Well, that's the place to go to find nobles. <laughs> yeah. But going to, uh, um, what is it? Blockbuster. You're not gonna find any gurus there. You're not <laughs> gonna find them at the bookstore. er, how many uh, books they have written by gurus. There's no gurus in the bookstore. So we're talking about a kind of a personal relationship where we begin to be around people who spend a lot of their time talking about Dhamma. Because Dhamma is really the only thing that's we're talking about, except that <laughs> Dhamma is everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Everything is the Dhamma. But we see it all in the context of the teachings of the Buddha in the sense of Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda in this very moment on and on like that and so learning to associate with people who are in that frame of reference is sort of like immersion into a culture to learn a foreign language you can't really learn Chinese out of a book because if you really want to learn Chinese you go to a place where everybody that you talk to is speaking back to you in Chinese. I'm going to do that pretty soon, actually. <laughs> that's funny. Mm-hmm. You say. So that's called immersion. Mm-hmm. OK, so if you really want to learn Dhamma language, the place to learn Dhamma language is by going to a place where the people only speak Dhamma language. This is why we need the Sangha. It's for you guys to practice speaking the Dhamma with each other until you become experts at it. (laughs) This is really valuable. The more time that we spend talking with others about the Dhamma, uh, the more understanding we have of it. Basically, uh, the skills can be developed. There is actually one sutta where the Buddha talks about that when two people are in a discussion with the Dhamma, that it's quite possible for one or both of them to go into the first jhana just because they're talking wholesome thoughts, having thoughts of right view, having thoughts and, and words of right speech and right attitude and right livelihood and all of the eightfold noble path. And we begin to just talk ourselves into feeling really good together. So that's, I mean, that just immediate benefit of being in a conversation about the Dhamma with others is very wholesome. Yeah. And so this is what the Sangha is really all about. And not only that, but when two of the Sangha are in the Dhamma discussing only the Dhamma together, then guess what? You have two Buddhas laughing together. The Zen talk about the sound of one land clapping, I'm not interested. I want to hear the sound of two Buddhas laughing. (laughs) It's funny
1: you mention that. I think the, I I don't know if this is true or not, but it seems like the Zen centers are a lot more accessible or like a lot more attended by Americans because the Watts and stuff seem like maybe too foreign to a lot of Americans or they're like kind of unknown for most people. I don't know if that's that's the case or not, but that's how it seems right now.
0: Yes, I would. I would say so uh, based upon some historical kinds of things. Uh, but I would also say that the, the Zen that is taught in the United States is more like what Western meditators or let us say Western Buddhism has to offer than what Zen is like actually in Japan. Hmm. okay that in fact the Zen of the United States has almost become the Mahasi method (laughs) but in a way so has Vajrayana when they call about choiceless awareness and this kind of stuff and the Zen practitioners talk about their own dark night of the soul and all of that kind of stuff and this (laughs) is how Western Buddhism can American Zen be (laughs) (laughs) yeah And so it really, we were talking about the the attitude of the people who come to these things. And because of the attitude of the people stay that way, then there really is and never has been a Sangha. What happened around the time of the Buddha was real friendship, real camaraderie. And that's what we uh, find in the watch, in the Asian watch, that's one of the things that and I would say this that after during the process of becoming and after the process of being a monk was when I was around really good friends. The monks that I was around were accepting everything was okay um, I really felt accepted by uh, Buddha Dasa and Achan uh, Po. This is just part of the Community part of the territory uh, that in the West we don't have. Okay, now there's also something else that I noticed back and forth uh, in time, and that is, is that when I was working in computers with um, computer scientists at, like, say, Hewlett Packard or IBM. then I was working with really intellectual people. And that when I was around the monks, I missed that intellectualization. the very, very high quality thought mm. that, a, that a trained scientific mind has. By and large, the monks don't have that. But they've got something better. And so, uh, even though they weren't, uh, let us say, uh, quite as sharp as I had been around, it was still preferable. And then you could begin to say, no, these guys were sharp, but each in his own way. Mm. That Maha for instance, he, he was um, brilliant and well known all across the United States for being uh, the chanter, he was very um, useful. In many respects, when the, the, the chants uh, uh, in Pali require a particular ceremony that's not done often, they would always call on him because he would remember the chant for that particular thing, whether <laughs> it was a new temple blessing or an ordination or whatever like that. He knew it. Okay. And so uh, that's that's the kind of brilliance. I was really impressed with him. In fact, I never was interested in chanting until I lived with him. Hmm. And that's when I became interested in chanting enough to write a book on it.
1: <laughs> Is that now right? I'm not
0: interested in chanting anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you got it out of your sister. <laughs> yeah, I got it out of my sister, but I had to go to one of the world's best. And stay with him. right, that's that's actually the way to do it, in fact. Um, So let's, let's finish this talk off with the kind of point that any opportunity that we can take for cleaning out the mind, we want to use that as an opportunity to do it. So being around other Dhammadus so that we can talk about Dhamma and keeping the mind clean, that's the kind of conversation that you would rather have rather than being in an argument with somebody over whether powers or rebirth exist or anything like that. <laughs> All right? And so just communicating and, and being in communion with others is, is highly, uh, uh, the, the easy way to talk about it is is that the Dhamma, like anything else, good, wholesome, unwholesome, whatever, everything has the quality of being rubbed off. So if you are un- around, if you're around unwholesome people, their unwholesomeness will rub off. If you're around actors, acting rubs off. If you're around politicians, politicking rubs off. If you're around Dhamma dudes, the Dhamma rubs off.
1: Is there so more you can tell me take? about uh, where to find
0: these Dhamma dudes everywhere? Or? <laughs> oh, yes, right. Um, for one. They're on um, the, the website that we're they're actually not on the website, but they are the ones who were building the website. There is also discuss. We have a discuss and that that one is um, uh, listed as part of the uh, description on most of the videos.
1: The uh, discord, is that right?
0: Discord, right? Okay. There's, a dis- there's a discord group that uh, should be uh, clickable from the uh, uh description of most of the uh of things
1: yeah and
0: I I will actually send you on Skype some contacts oh, okay. so that you can uh get involved with them got a lot of friends in fact uh, on Discord they talk about hey let's get offline and go have a conversation nice okay so that's a that's a good yeah, talk about you know a pickup market. That's a good place to go pick up some noble friends. <laughs> is Discord. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right, Brian. Good luck. I'm really pleased. I've I've heard uh, a lot, and I hope that you begin to congratulate yourself more for your <laughs> correct practice. That you're right. getting it. Well, do. Going. Enjoy ah oh, that was a nice one <laughs> keep it up <laughs> thank you we'll see you okay bye-bye All right. have a good one